Welcome to the Distrust and Disparities Podcast, Voices from the Margins of Healthcare. On this podcast, we will explore both current and historical cases of medical injustices within the American healthcare system. We will get into how we can overcome this systemic mistreatment, advocate for ourselves, and close the gap on poor health outcomes and disparities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Camille White. We were treated unfairly, to some extent, like guinea pigs. We were not pigs. We were not dancing boys we were project, as we were projected in the movie on Miss Evers' boys. We were, we, we were all hard-working men and not boys and citizens of the United States. The wounds, the wounds rather, that were inflicted upon us cannot be undone. I'm saddened today to think of those who did not survive and whose families will forever live with the knowledge that their death and suffering was preventable. In episode 11, we continue our discussion of the notorious Tuskegee syphilis study, a horrendous example of medical exploitation inflicted upon African Americans. We cover how and why the study ended and its legacy, and we highlight Push Black, a nonprofit media organization that is dedicated to raising up Black voices. So welcome back to part two of our discussion on the Tuskegee syphilis study. We'll do a little recap of where we ended before we jump into the details of this week. So in part one, we were discussing how in 1958, PHS, the Public Health Services, they awarded a certificate appreciation to the men. So around that time, the median age for the men was 74. And Nurse Rivers, she also retired. She was getting up there in age as well. So she ended up retiring around this time. She was also awarded the Ovita Culp Hobby Award from the Department of Health and Education and Welfare for her selfless devotion and skillful human relations. And also when the, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, the study was initially supposed to be, they were estimating maybe six months, but here we are at 25 years. And like we said, this is a 40-year study. How do numbers so off? How do you, you start out at, oh, we just going to be looking at people for six months. And then mm-hmm. now we're looking at 25 years of like you handing out medals and awards and little certificates talking about. Somehow y'all magically made it 25 years, but y'all were right. only planning on six months of this nonsense. Right. And and like we said, in 1943, penicillin was deemed a safe and effective cure for syphilis. And PHS, they had also set up clinics to essentially eradicate the disease because it wasn't just high among Black people. It was mm-hmm. affecting all of American society at that time. Mm-hmm. So. They, the goal, they wanted to treat as many people and get rid of syphilis because it was so rampant. And like what I really wanted to say, so we discovered the cure for syphilis. At any point, you could have pivoted your study. You could have ended the study. Mm-hmm. You could have saw how penicillin works on latent stages of syphilis. But you guys continue the same study of just seeing what happens when syphilis goes untreated. We already know the horrible complications and side effects of untreated syphilis. We already know this. And still we're studying what happens to Black men when they are not treated with syphilis. Like, what are we learning that's new? Especially after like 25 years, there's there's nothing new to learn. If you were initially even trying to look at it for six months, maybe even a year, you would have seen what it was. You would have seen at the two, five-year mark. You are still in this, doing this for 25 years. You're just seeing how long will it take for these men to die? 
Exactly. And also I was reading up, they could have possibly been using the men as uh, vectors for syphilis because they did not know how to culture the disease and have it outside the body. So they needed men with an active infection. This could have been why they were frequently drawing their blood so that they can get the bacteria. They can test different things because the PHS, they were able to develop a more accurate test to detect syphilis. And so they eventually made money off of this test by selling it around the world. Oh, interesting. Right. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) the men, they could, it's possible that they had them around so that they can get the bacteria from them. They were basically used as like human vectors, human test tubes to culture the bacteria and pull it out. That's why they kept it going on so long and did not treat the men because they needed... They needed their infected blood. They needed Mm -hmm. their blood because they had syphilis and because it didn't last outside the body, they didn't know how to maintain that. It was like, well, let's just... This is our pool of people to use. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's like going to a refrigerator and getting out a vial of blood. Instead, let's go to this living human being that we should be treating and taking care of and just drawing their blood and giving them some aspirin and going, okay, see you next time. Mm-hmm. And another interesting fact that we wanted to point out of around this time is that after World War II, you had the Nuremberg Code that was written in 1947 And then in 1964, the World Health Organization, they published their Declaration of Helsinki. And so both of those were aimed at protecting humans from experimentation. But of course, also happening at this time was still the Tuskegee syphilis study. You would think that after something so devastating and tragic and, again, something preventable where People looked at Jewish lives as though they meant nothing, that then you could easily turn your eyes to this so-called study and go, wait a second, we're experimenting on human beings and not treating them like human beings. So maybe we need to reevaluate and cut this because, you know, you continue to do this study as late as 1969 and and nothing stopped you but we literally went through a whole second world war and millions and millions of jewish people were murdered and things came out of that to protect people from experimentation and y'all still kept going right it's like we can point out what the germans are doing is wrong but here on american soil we don't want to address what's going on at the time this is also the civil rights era Mm-hmm. where they're still lynching Black people and they have this medical study. This is medical abuse and exploitation going on here on our own soils. It's just such a contradiction. And we will see this is the pattern of American history. Mm-hmm. It just constantly keeps repeating. So we're going to jump into this episode and we'll discuss how and why the study ended, and just the lasting impact the Tuskegee study has had on society, medicine, and culture. So in 1965, the study did begin to receive some outside attention. Sort of the first group of people that really were looking into it were the Students for a Democratic Society, And they discovered that the study was going on and they held rallies to even get it to be stopped. But they didn't get much attention and their efforts to get the study to be stopped were dismissed because they were seen as a fringe group since they were a radical leftist group. So you did have people paying attention to what was going on. But again, excuses were made because of, well, who was bringing this up? And then also that same year, there was a white physician named Dr. Irwin Schouts of Henry Ford Hospital, and he ended up reading a medical article about the study, and that was in the Archives of Internal Medicine. He wrote a letter directly to PHS where he stated, I am utterly astounded by the fact that physicians allow patients with fatal disease to remain untreated when effective therapy is available. And apparently PHS just didn't even bother to respond to his letter. 
here you have a doctor, someone who is able to clearly just look at what is going on, articles written in a medical journal and go, what the hell? Why is this even being allowed to go on? What in the world are y'all doing? And they just ignore that. Right. And he's one of their peers, a, a white peer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes they, it seemed like they were bragging like, oh, we're doing this study. Look at what we're doing. They're getting attention. But this is one of the first doctors that called them out. And is like, we have penicillin available. Why aren't you treating the men? Mm-hmm. And they held a meeting to discuss, should they continue the study? Is it a matter of like a racial issue? Like, why is this going on? And this is in 1965 as well. And in the minutes was quoted, it says any like questions of whether this is a racial issue, we'll just say that these people were at the point where therapy would no longer help them and that we're giving them better medical care than they would under any circumstances. I mean, it's been decades now. Of course, they've gotten to the point where nothing, well, you're claiming nothing would help them. And who knows if penicillin would have reversed anything. But yeah, you've allowed something to go unchecked for decades. So then, of course, you you can make that stupid argument and claim, well, I mean, there's nothing to be done now. It's it's sort of like too too little, too late. Oh, well, they're getting medical care better than what like they normally would have gotten. So it they're just make excuses for their so many excuses, terrible behavior, just terrible behavior. Yeah. And like we said before, they could have tested to see if penicillin would have worked on the Mm -hmm. latent stage. But y'all chose not to. And this is 1965. Penicillin came out in 1943. So 20 years have gone by. 20 and you years. you guys have done nothing. Yeah. And you're learning nothing new. So Mm-mm. why not treat them in? It, it just makes no sense to me. It's just so frustrating. Also in 1965, there was a young venereal disease interviewer, Peter Buxton. He learned of the study. So he went as far as risking his job and writing to his superiors that the study should be stopped and that it was unethical. So... In response, PHS, they reviewed the study just to see if they should continue it or not. The outcome of the committee, they decided to continue with the study. The goal was to keep tracking the participants until they died and autopsies were performed so that the project data could be analyzed. And then they also lectured Buxton of the merits of their work. I don't know what merits they decided to continue the study you know, they keep telling themselves these false lies of why we need to do it. We need to continue this study for the data. What data? There is what no are data. we learning new? There's there's no new data. There's no new information. And it's also really frustrating where they formed a review committee of what? The same people who initially decided right. to do this <laughs> stupid shit in the first place to then evaluate themselves and go, No, we're on the right track. We should keep going. And we should keep going to just keep up with these participants and make sure we know where they are when they die. So then we can continue to do autopsies to continue to say the same thing like, oops, looks like syphilis killed them. And this is how like, oh, well, uh, another one gone. You're not learning anything. In 1967, Buxton, he left the agency to attend law school. But he continued to write to PHS to express his complaints, but they still ignored him. So finally, in 1972, this was seven years later, Buxton, he got fed up with PHS continuing the study. So he ended up leaking the story to a reporter friend. And this reporter, they passed the story to Jean Heller of the Associated Press. So on July 25th, 1972, Jean Heller, she broke the story in the Washington Star and also in the New York Times. She wrote, there had been a 40-year non-therapeutic experiment called a study on the effects of untreated syphilis on Black men in the rural South. When this was released, it received so much media attention, so much public outcry from everyone. And by the time the study came out, 
28 participants had died from syphilis. A hundred more had passed away from other syphilis-related complications. And 40 spouses had been diagnosed with it. And 19 children were born with syphilitic complications. Hmm. 1972. And like we were discussing, if this had not gotten into the hands of the reporter, when were they going to stop the study? When? Yeah. When were they going to stop where you had other people that were a part of the medical community, the scientific community going, hey, earlier, what are y'all doing? What's going on? Ignore, ignore, ignore till finally it's put into the hands of a reporter and then it gets released. And then luckily, of course, two people pay attention to the article but yeah, it, it was only because this article came out that it stopped. Who knows? Would it have been the 80s, the 90s? Would it have quietly just stopped because the participants died? You had right. to be stopped because it came out. It wasn't because you finally woke up and said, wait, this is wrong. Or you even finally acknowledged someone else, a member of your community going, hey, this is wrong. You need to stop it. It was because now the country knew, everyone knew. People were outraged, just people internationally, they were outraged. It was all over the news. Both black and white people were outraged that this study was allowed to go on for 40 years. 40 years. The doctors, they formed committees and they were like, oh yeah, let's continue it. And even after the public outcry, they were like, we didn't do anything wrong. This was just a study. This was research. It wasn't racially biased. We talked about the doctor's beliefs Mm -hmm. that they thought syphilis would have a different course in Black people's bodies. What were they learning new? The fact that they can, after 40 years and all the things that have occurred, still look at this and go... This wasn't racist. We didn't do anything wrong. People in the research community and also just apologists, people who sympathize with the researchers, they were like, this was just a passive observation. You know, they were doing research. They were studying. No harm was done. But no, the researchers, they actively designed this study because mm-hmm. they wanted to autopsy the men and see what happened when syphilis goes untreated. They lied to the participants. They didn't tell them they were in a study. Mm -hmm. They promised them treatments, but they actively withheld the treatment, the cure Mm -hmm. for syphilis. When members and participants of the study went to seek out penicillin treatments, they were removed. They were put on list of don't allow them, don't give it to them. But then you're going to claim that, oh, this was just all passive. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just observing what was happening. Please. Right. And we want to point out they were never prosecuted or punished for what they did. And I kept looking like, what happened to the doctors? What happened to the doctors? Kept Googling it. And after a while, you just keep reading like the same facts. There's more information about like Nurse Rivers and like her involvement. I read her role as a nurse at the time. They were the lowest totem pole of the medical system. So all she did was listen to the doctors and do what they told her to do, Mm -hmm. basically. And they roped her in to keep track of the guys. Like many of the participants said, they were her friends. They couldn't believe, you know, that she knew that they weren't getting treatment Mm -hmm. and she didn't tell them. Mm Mm-hmm. They hired her as a research assistant. She never knew anything about like research and stuff like that. They hired a black woman so that she could bring them in and keep track, get close to the families. In the book where I got a lot of my information, Harriet A. Washington, she pointed out, perhaps we should ask ourselves why the name of Nurse Rivers is so closely associated with the Tuskegee syphilis study, but the names of Talfaro Clark, Thomas Morrell, Raymond Vondeler and Oliver C. Wigner remain all but unknown. Yeah, you never hear about them. You hear about Nurse Eunice. This Black woman is now clearly being used as a scapegoat. And as that's Mm -hmm. the person that you can place all the blame on when Nurse Rivers was not the one who started all of this. She did not design the study. She did not design the study. She was a part of it. And unfortunately so, because it's where she was used. She was preyed upon too and used to 
gain influence and trust of these men and their families. And now decades and decades and decades later, everyone knows her names, but not the names of all these white men who were truly the ones Mm -hmm. doing the most like evil and horrible things. And even after it was pointed out to them that it was horrible, they still went, "Uh, no, we didn't do anything wrong. Not us. No, not us. They never acknowledged that they did anything wrong. But Nurse Eunice gets blamed and her motives and what she knew and what she didn't know, all that is put into question when that's so unfair. And it's also Mm -hmm. another moment of like, y'all just treat black women like such trash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to point out, she didn't design the study. I wish she would have spoken up Mm -hmm. and, you know, asked questions like, why are we doing this? Why is this going on so long? Why aren't we really treating these men? But she should not bear the brunt of what happened to the study. We should not be analyzing her role in the study. We should be looking at the doctors, how they were able to get away with this, how this was able to go on Mm -hmm. so long. She didn't initiate this. She didn't start this. So many people higher ups with Mm -hmm. PHS. You are opening up clinics to treat people with syphilis, but then you're also running this study that's been going on for over 30 years Mm -hmm. and not treating these men, the contradiction. So the government, they wanted to just sweep this under the rug as well, but they received so much media attention that they had to address it, to formally address it because it just was not going to go away without it being addressed. So they put together an ad hoc advisory panel So it was composed of nine members from the fields of health administration, medicine, law, religion, and education. So five members of the panel were Black and four were white. They didn't have a historian on the panel, which would have been significantly helpful for a study that went on for four decades. Yeah, you need a historian who can truly look at society and culture in a way that these Mm -hmm. other people in these different fields wouldn't be able to, to analyze what was happening for those 40 years. Right. The panel ultimately concluded that the study was ethically unjustified. And there were a number of things that went into them making that statement like the standard research protocols of the time weren't followed at all for this study. And researchers never informed the men of the actual name of the study that, you know, it was called Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. They didn't disclose its purpose or even any potential consequences of getting treatment or non-treatment during like being a part of this study. Exactly. And people may look at this like, oh, the study took place in the 1930s, but it went all the way up to the 1960s. And there were some standards and practices in place that governed how to deal with human subjects and participants, and they completely ignored it and did not follow the protocols. Not at all. Or even down to the basic thing of the men didn't know they were in a study. They literally (laughs) thought that they were receiving medical treatment and they never knew of like the debilitating and life-threatening consequences of what was going to happen to their bodies because of syphilis, nor the impact that having syphilis would have on their families, like their wives, their girlfriends, and their children. Exactly. The doctors knew this information and they did not let the men know. So you're deliberately deceiving them. And even when the cure for syphilis, the panel, they concluded that no choices were given to the participants to quit the study when penicillin became available. So you knew there was a cure for syphilis and it was available and you did not give them the option to take it and leave the study. So this is very deliberate. And the panel, they reported these findings in October of 1972. And then one month later, the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs, they officially declared the end of the Tuskegee study. I don't know why they needed a whole panel to officially end it. 
I hope they ended it before. I was like trying to look up like the official end date and everything. I hope as soon as that article came out, they officially stopped the treatments. When did you offer all the participants penicillin? When did you start doing things that you should have done years and years and years ago? And what's even interesting is that there was like internal conflict with the panelist members that ended up resulting in a very watered down version of the report that was submitted, which again, is like, oh, okay. Cause y'all want to change history. You want to rewrite things and you want to turn it into, well, it wasn't that bad. You are then controlling right. the narrative. Right. There was conflict between them and they ended up leaving out the specific references to the intentional racism in the study. They didn't want to condemn the racist mentality that the researchers brought into the study and why they created the study to begin with. They left that out. And then another detail, the group, they were asking for specific records from the archive from the government so that they can analyze and bring to the case. The government never gave them those documents. Once the report was put out, another person was able to get those documents and find the real true meaning of the study and what the doctors were doing. So you put together this panel, but you don't give them all the files and the documents that they need. And also, they didn't have that much time to put together this report. You were also rushing them Mm -hmm. to get it done. Another horrible part of what came out of all of this is that researchers decided to burn the tapes of interviews that were conducted with Nurse Rivers, the victim, sociologists, and others involved in the study. So again, you're covering it up. You're getting rid of the evidence of your wrongdoing, even though you're saying to everyone's faces, we didn't do anything wrong. Then why are you getting rid of evidence? Yeah, this fact was interesting to me. This was something that I didn't know there was new information to me. Mm-hmm. You're burning first person accounts of what is going on. Mm-hmm. How did they come to this conclusion? And at the time, they said that their reasoning for burning the tapes, they wanted to protect the reputation of Nurse Rivers. Mm-mm. They didn't want her to be the one that got blamed for like bringing them into the appointments and stuff like that. Harriet A. Washington, she points out that you robbed Nurse Rivers of her voice. Mm-hmm. And seeing what her explanation was and what mm-hmm. her true involvement in yeah. the study was, that's no reason to burn they this weren't. information. And that was one of the key reasons that we pointed out there was no historian on the study because they would not have allowed this to happen. This is valuable information. Just think about all the documentaries that come out about like World War One, World War Two, the interviews that's conducted. Mm-hmm. Just being able to look at that information, to go back and review what happened so that we don't do it again. We're going to point out in this episode and on future episodes This same pattern keeps repeating themselves. We keep seeing it again. Mm -hmm. In 1973, there was a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of, you have like, you know, the men in the study, their wives, children, and their families. And the attorney for that was Fred Gray. And ultimately, that class action lawsuit resulted in a settlement of more than $9 million given to the study participants. And that can seem like a lot of money, especially in 1973. But if you break it all down to truly what do these victims get, it was about $37,500 for each of the living study participants that remained. $15,000 for their heirs, and then $1 million went to lawyers and legal fees. And an additional part of the class action lawsuit is where the U.S. government promised, you know, how they love to promise things, was that they would provide a range of free services to the survivors of the study and their families, So all living participants became immediately entitled to free medical and burial services. 
which again is just like this is what y'all already promised why are y'all right. giving the same old tired oh here's medical treatment and burial services excuse me that's what y'all lured us in with in the first place Weren't y'all already right. giving medical treatment and burial services? So why are you then having to say, well, oh no, now with this lawsuit in the settlement, we're still going to give y'all that? That's not adding anything. Like, we're fi- we'll finally treat you here. Yeah. We'll, we'll treat you now. The same people that didn't treat you and allowed you to die and suffer these same complications. Like, oh, we'll give you free treatment now. We'll come. We'll really treat you now. That That's just insane. It's just insane. <sighs> and right. It's, it's, and that they had to hire a lawyer. Yeah. Why wasn't this just automatically given to them? Why did they have to fight this case? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it ended up being settled out of court. Yeah. But it, you just offer up the same thing that you offered up 40 years prior. Who wants that treatment? If I were you know, a family member, a participant, and be like, we can't trust treatment from them. Mm-hmm. You you done seen what they did for 40 years and now we're supposed to trust it when they originally told us that we were getting free treatment. So what what is this new free treatment that we're being promised now? What's so special and different about it? Yeah, I would not trust it Mm-mm. at all. No. Like you let us suffer and now it's like, here, we'll treat you. We'll take care of your family. Make sure nothing else is done. You you can't trust that because those are like just empty promises. They're empty promises from the same government that allowed this to go on for 40 years. What What's new this time? What's, what's going to be different this time around? But I just highly doubt so many things about it. And it's just, it's another empty promise from the U.S. government of, well, now we'll finally take care of you. Now that we've been exposed for all the terribleness we did, we're now going to claim that we're going to make it right by offering the same thing that we promised you in 1932. I'm interested in learning about the health of this community. This atrocity happened in Tuskegee and Macon County, Alabama. I'm curious to see if health disparities, health, the health gap between Blacks and white, how is it in that community? Did getting this free health care, free health services, did it really make a difference? So I'm going to look into that and this could be a potential follow-up episode, but I'm curious. Offering free health services, did it really make a difference? Or like so many things, was this just performative? Mm-hmm. How is the quality, the standard of this free medical care that they are supposedly receiving? Yeah. So in 1996, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study Legacy Committee was formed. And the goal of the committee was to develop strategies to address the damages of the study to the psyche of African-Americans and also to address other ethical behaviors of government-led research to rebuild the reputation of Tuskegee through public education about the study, and also to develop a ethics of science research and scholarship to begin building training programs for healthcare providers. They wanted to urge President Clinton to apologize for the emotional and psychological damage of the study. And I think it's so important, one of their goals of rebuilding the reputation of Tuskegee, because that's the name that's tied to it, not the name of those men that we mentioned earlier. It's the name of this Black university that was created to teach members of the Black community. And now that's been tainted by the study that was run by the U.S. government. And they specifically chose Macon County because of Tuskegee's location there. Mm-hmm. where yeah. it's that's unfortunate where then they have to do all this work in educating the public to let people know okay yes things occurred here but truly you cannot blame us and and say that we were the ones involved they mm-hmm. they targeted us and chose our location because we existed here but they weren't the originators of this study exactly and tuskegee at that time it was considered the black Harvard, 
of the South, and it was producing a number of famous Black graduates, Mm -hmm. students that were doing amazing things. Tuskegee was one of the nation's premier African-American research center, and it's forever linked to this infamous case of medical exploitation. Mm -hmm. On May 16, 1996, President Clinton, he formally apologized for the Tuskegee study. The Legacy Committee was there and also only eight survivors, eight survivors, this was in 1996, were still alive in their families. So after this apology, a grant was given to Tuskegee University and they formed their National Center for Bioethics and Research and Healthcare. Also, Laws came out about doing research studies and they created what many institutions have. They have like a research review board to review studies. I want to say that the apology just seemed very performative just watching it or just thinking back. It just seems very performative because no real lasting change as far as medical abuse or injustices for Black or other marginalized communities was really implemented. No, we we still have things that happen to this very day and so mm-hmm. many other topics and events that we'll be discussing later on the podcast where if something truly came out of all of this, we wouldn't have anything really current to be talking about because a lot of the things that are happening is because of racism. And when you have a whole panel of people who go to analyze it and you remove that as any of the reasoning behind it, well then, yeah, there's never going to be any lasting change. There's never going to be anything other than a performance to claim that, oh, we did something. We made it better. We acknowledged it. Let's pat ourselves on the back And now let's move on and not bring it up again or not get to the root of the problem. Right. You invited these men who remained and their families to this, you know, this ceremony where you have the president of the United States, you know, apologizing and telling them how bad it was and they're sorry. And then, but then now what? And what's next? What's actually going to come out of it? Right. And a really good quote from the book that I wanted to point out, it says, the greatest tragedy of the study is that it has failed to serve as a cautionary tale for researchers. Its inception marked the dawn of many other experimental evils against Blacks to come. So with the Tuskegee study, they didn't treat the men. You know, they just observed what happened. They withheld treatment. But in other cases that we'll discuss on this podcast where scientists are actually testing hazardous chemicals on marginalized communities. So Tuskegee is the most infamous and known, but it wasn't the worst. And you would think that researchers was like, hey, let's stop doing this after receiving all this attention, apologizing Money was being paid from our tax dollars, probably. Mm -hmm. But still, we continue to do this. We already discussed how Tuskegee University, they have been marred and closely linked to this study. And we felt it was really important how the Tuskegee study, it remains an iconic symbol of racialized medical abuse. And it's continuously blamed as the main reason for Black people's distrust of the medical industry. Yeah, it's always used as, oh, that's the reason why Mm -hmm. Black people have a distrust of healthcare. But it's not the only one. There's so many more. There's so, so, so many more that literally occur every single day in this country. But then when it's sort of held up in that way, then people, because they don't truly want to examine what's going on and the root of it, you're able to dismiss what's actually happening. And that's used as the only reasoning and you don't really look into it where it's like, it's racism. It's racism. Mm -hmm. The answer is racism. Right. 
Tuskegee, it bears the burden of being like the sole reason that Black people distrust the system when in actuality, it's a part of a pattern in American history mm-hmm. of experimental abuse and medical abuse. If you look back at any century, decade in American history, you will find evidence of medical abuse against African-Americans or other marginalized communities. Yep. So Tuskegee was is the most infamous, but it's not the only one. And it's not the worst one, which not. is sad. It's, yeah. it's not That's the worst real one. That's what's real sad. Something that went on for mm-hmm. 40 years and was this terrible and y'all just let these men and their families suffer. It isn't the worst one. Like what happened in Tuskegee, we did not learn from it. Instead, we're continuing to repeat the same process of something really bad happens in a marginalized community. We're outraged. There's media attention. And then we go back to our normal lives. They apologize. They make a formal statement. Oh, it won't never happen again until it happens again. Mm -hmm. It's happening every day. Mm -hmm. It's just not getting media attention. Yeah. If it was truly to get the media attention it deserves, all of this deserves, we would be so overwhelmed with everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, why aren't we doing anything? And they're like, oh no, this is these are just isolated events. When mm-hmm. in actuality, it is a pattern that keeps happening mm-hmm. over and over. And also Tuskegee is blamed for the reason that African-Americans do not participate in medical research. So researchers, they hold the belief that it will be too difficult or impossible to recruit Black participants because of the Tuskegee study. So they think we shouldn't waste our time. It's just going to be too much of a hassle to try to get Black people to participate. That's just lazy. And it's it's an ignorant statement. You just have this assumption And instead of doing your job, and even if you did have a difficult time getting people to get involved, then you figure out other ways. Okay, how can we engage with the Black community? How can we engage with other marginalized communities? Instead, you go off of your racist, ignorant assumption and go, eh, they really wouldn't want to do it anyway. So why why even waste our time trying? Right. You're blaming the victim. Oh, they don't trust us. We can't do anything. Instead of making a system that is worth trusting, instead mm-hmm. of fixing the system, you're blaming them like, oh, it's no point of trying to get them to participate in this study. Even though we we need it, we make up a huge part of the population. Mm-hmm. We're like, why waste our time? They're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. But instead of telling and explaining the details of the study and the purpose and why it should be done... And one of the doctors, Dr. Ruben Warren, that's in charge of the Bioethics Research Center at Tuskegee, he stated, yes, there is hesitancy there, but it's not refusal. Black people are willing to participate if Mm -hmm. you explain what's going on. Yeah, there's a huge difference. It's Mm -hmm. literally going, hey, I have some questions. I'm a little concerned versus nah, never, don't bother me again, get out of my face, get off my porch, get off my phone. There is a complete difference there. And again, that's just using an excuse where you're lazy. You don't care. You're racist and you're lazy and you don't truly care about changing anything. Right. And we see the same pattern when the COVID-19 vaccine, Mm -hmm. they immediately cited Tuskegee as the reason that it's going to be hard to vaccinate Black people. Most people, their hesitancy was not related because of Tuskegee. They probably can think of current incidences of medical abuse, or also people were concerned about the vaccine because of religious beliefs, safety concerns. They were worried about how quickly it came out. We're Mm -hmm. overlooking the real reason of their hesitancy and just blaming it on the Tuskegee study. Maybe they had COVID and they were in the hospital and the way that they were treated. We don't know, but we're automatically just blaming it on Tuskegee. It's like every major infection or trying to get Black people to trust the system, they just blame it on Tuskegee. Yeah. And instead, they should be focusing on continuous efforts 
that address Mm -hmm. the root of the problem, that address the racism that is all throughout our healthcare system, that address the medical hesitancy that marginalized communities have, the inferior treatment that we receive, and then making sure that there's a lasting impact and they're not just going to roll out some little last minute acknowledgements and a little performance and call it a day. Yeah, it's the same thing. I know with COVID, they were like, racism, it's a public health epidemic. We're going to address this. They kept saying it. It was like people were surprised and shocked that more Black people and people of color and minorities were being affected by COVID or dying of COVID. It was like everybody was shocked, but it's like Mm -hmm. the same pattern is just being repeated. Same pattern being repeated, or that's the frustrating thing where you see so many people who clearly just aren't paying attention. Are we still dealing with it? It's like, yes, we never stopped dealing with it. And you, you look stupid as hell to even point that out of questioning. Are we still dealing with racism? Yes. It, it never went anywhere. Where have you right. been? Where yes. have you been? You're clearly not a member of a marginalized community, nor do you have any deep relationship with someone who is. Because if you did, you wouldn't be even asking that question, you wouldn't be making that statement about we're in year, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, we're in year, whatever. And it it still sucks. Y'all still doing the same bullshit over and over again. And we have been telling y'all a thousand, a million times, y'all need to fix it. Exactly. We really need to stop this cycle and implement real change. We need to look at what's going on. Mm-hmm. And address it. I'm tired of this performative work. And we wanted to end this segment with a quote from the book by focusing upon a single event of the Tuskegee syphilis study rather than examining a centuries old pattern of experimental abuse. Recent investigations tend to distort the problem, casting African Americans' weariness as an overreaction to a single event rather than an understandable, reasonable reaction to the persistent experimental abuse that has characterized American medicine's interaction with African-Americans. She said it perfectly. So now we want to jump into the segment where we amplify an organization working to dismantle racist systems and improve the health outcomes of marginalized people. So this week, we wanted to highlight an organization working to change the narrative and put our stories, Black stories at the forefront every day of the year. You know, we're in Black History Month, but this isn't the only time to focus on Black history. I mean, our history is literally being made every day, so we should be talking about it every day. And our history is often written by other people. Mm -hmm. So with that, you have it being, you know, downplayed or literally sometimes like just not even being told at all. So the organization we wanted to highlight is called Push Black, and it's the nation's largest nonprofit media organization for Black Americans. And they use the power of narrative, especially Black history and news, to educate and activate subscribers to build their personal power and create lasting economic and political change. Yes. So Push Black is a nonprofit dedicated to raising up Black voices. They're a small team, but they have a huge impact. They reach tens of millions of people with their Black news stories every week. They also fight for criminal justice reform to protect our communities. And they also run voting campaigns that reach over 10 million African Americans. I know I followed them on Instagram and every day they come up on my feed and I feel like I learned something new, something interesting. And and inspires like future episodes that we want to talk about on the podcast. They're doing great and amazing work. You can sign up 
for their email and you'll get weekly emails that discuss black news stories and history things that we need to know i know this month is black history month but we need to be discussing this information every day we need to be talking about our stories discussing it from our perspective and what is going on and since push black is a nonprofit. They really rely on donations from their supporters. So if you can, it would be great to go and donate to them. And they currently have a fundraising goal of $10,000. And they're about a little over halfway there, about $5,400 right now. So, you know, any amount counts. You can even sign up to be a monthly donator and patron to Push Black. What they do is so important because... It's black people telling black people's stories. And we need to be the ones in control of our stories, our news, our history. Because if we're in control of it, then we know it's going to be the truth. So we encourage you to, one, go subscribe to their pages, engage on their social media platforms, share their stories, read, take the time to read, share it with people, and learn something new. If you can, go to their website pushblack.org and donate to their campaign so that they can continue to do this amazing work. We need to support organizations like this that are telling our stories, telling the truth. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We hope that you learned something new about the full history of the Tuskegee study and its lasting impact. We want you to take away from this that, yes, Tuskegee is the longest and most infamous case but it is not the worst nor the last. Unfortunately, this pattern of medical abuse and injustice still continues to this day in America. The goal of the Distrust and Disparities podcast is to discuss these cases, not let them be forgotten, and to learn from them. And we also want to uplift organizations and people working to stop horrible patterns of medical abuse and deceit. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss, share your own personal story, or shout out an organization or individual, please email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.